From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. How do you approach problem solving? Do collaboration and brainstorming spark solutions quickly? Or do you identify a goal and work backward? Oftentimes, we can't be sure what the answer is that we're looking for. In a translational domain, researchers must develop processes to advance their technologies to patients quickly, but they don't always know how. Dr. Jeff Karp and his lab approach new opportunities by defining the problem before anything else. They call this radical simplicity. Dr. Jeff Karp is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital, and a principal faculty member at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Dr. Karp, thank you for coming back. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So um, we want to talk about um, a story from your career about when um, an idea that you had didn't turn out the way you thought it would. In 2008, your lab was working on a targeted approach to stem cell therapy, uh, but you were met with some obstacles. Could you tell us about that and um, sort of what the story behind that was? Sure. So the first project in my laboratory, uh, what we were aiming to do was to develop a new approach um, so that we could engineer the surface of cells. Um, so these would be, you know, in the context of, of uh, stem cell therapy, where you take cells out of the body, manipulate them, and then put them back in the body. And um, one of the, the great needs is if we could have the ability to inject these cells intravenously, for example, and then have them to, you know, target any place in the body, um, that would be huge because there's a lot of locations you want to get to, but it's just very invasive to put a needle, you know, deep into the tissue. And, and you can only really do that, you know, a small number of times. And so if we could develop the ability to have a stem cell therapy where you could program those cells to go anywhere they needed to go, um, you know, to the bones, for example, to treat osteoporosis or to the joints to treat arthritis or to the heart or the liver or the lung, um, that could be very powerful. And most of the time when you inject the cells um, into the bloodstream, uh, they just get filtered and, and, and they don't really get to the location that you want them to go to. And so we figured out a way to engineer the surface of cells um, that could target various sites uh, in the bloodstream. And we had advanced a project um, to a point where we, we had some very promising data and preclinical models, we showed that it was possible to do this. Uh, and so I was really excited at that time. I had just started my laboratory in July of, of 07. Uh, so this was you know around 2008 or 2009 timeframe. And uh, I approached a local investor and, uh, you know, and I really, I went in with the, the hope that this potentially could be a new company and we'd be able to bring, you know, use this technology to, to bring new therapies to patients. And, uh, I went through the data, um, and, you know, shared all the results, uh, and the investor essentially turned to me and 
started asking questions about, uh, you know, the number of steps involved in the process that we had developed. And, you know, it turned out we had a five-step process. And, and um, you know, the more and more that uh, I described, the more I started thinking, you know, wonder what he's thinking. And, uh, and then he turned to me and said, you know, this is just way too complicated. He said, there's, there's, you know, so many cases where we've tried to bring new technology to patients. Um, but, uh, it just can't be manufactured. We have to be able to do quality control at every single step. And sometimes you can't even do it for a single step. It's so challenging. Um, and let alone you have five steps in your process. And so he turned to me and he said, you know, if you want to help patients, uh, you're really going to need to simplify your approach. Um, and so I went back to my lab, kind of, you know, tail between the legs kind of thing, not not uh, very happy. Um, but I just knew I had to take that advice to heart. And, um, and so I started thinking from that moment onward, um, how can we really simplify what we're doing at every possible stage? And um, that really got me into the habit of thinking not just about the academic problems that we were working on and publishing papers, but really thinking about what are the steps that come after um, we demonstrate a proof of concept, for example, in a preclinical model. And, um, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I really needed to understand what happens after the publication, you know, after you have a technology that's now, um, you know, you got to a proof of concept, how do you then bring that to patients? And there's so many steps involved and so many different types of people that um, with different expertise that are required to bring a new technology, you know, convert it into a product that can actually help patients. Um, and that just changed my whole mindset. You've talked before on the show about your mentor who kind of instilled in you this idea of taking product, taking discoveries and bringing them to market. Like this is, this should be the goal. And what you just said about, you know, the goal being to publish a paper and then from beyond there is sort of, you know, somebody else's responsibility. And in your, the Ted talk that you gave, um, uh, last year yeah. uh, where you talked about this, you, you talked about, um, you know, it was, oh, it's somebody, like, they'll figure it out. The entrepreneurs, they'll figure it out. But uh, it sounds like what you're saying is to really be effective, you have to think about that entire process from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'd certainly been uh, exposed to uh, a number of different entrepreneurial kind of academic mindsets, um, but I had never done it myself. Um, and, uh, and so I really didn't know what was involved. It was more, you know, it was kind of in the, uh, um, you know, just kind of like watching from afar, um, uh, you know, uh, a number of my mentors, um, create companies and, and try and move things out of the lab, but I really didn't know what was involved. And so, and I think that what I used to think, um, was that, you know, you'd move a project to a certain point. Um, and then you'd hand it off to an entrepreneur or, you know, you'd license it to a company and they would just bring it to market. And, you know, so I used to think what we did in academia was really a big, big part of it. You know, it was majority of, you know, once we could demonstrate a, a proof of concept and and uh, have a significant advance. But now what I've realized through really being engaged in this um, translational pro process 
is that it's almost like what we do in the lab is is just a, a few percentage, you know, it's, it's just like two or three percent of the way. And the other, you know, 90 whatever percent is what happens after something leaves the lab. And that includes you know, trying to figure out how to do the manufacturing and the patent strategy and um, reimbursement, um, you know, the whole the whole regulatory process. Uh, you need super creative people at every single step in this process who are putting as much thought and effort as you did to get to that proof of concept, um, you know, in the laboratory. And, and that's when I realized that I really need to understand this process better and I can't just wait. You know, I think the typical thing to do is, is, you know, you go through, you may have like a two, three, four, five, maybe even 10 year project. And then once you get to a proof of concept and in, let's say a preclinical model, then you go and find um, an entrepreneur to, to partner with. Um, but I think the problem with that is often the technologies when you get to that point are, are not... Um, translatable, like they're too complicated, or you've missed a lot of um, critical things that would have um, led to a better um, uh, patent strategy. You know, you'd have stronger patents had you been thinking about patents from the first step. Um, maybe, uh, you know, the technology, you, you pick the wrong first application to go after. There's a lot of considerations. If you, you know, we develop a lot of platform technologies in the lab, which means that you can use them for multiple applications. Um, but often there's a lot of things you could do, but very few things you should do. Um, and it really is dictated by, um, you know, what are some of the other products that are currently available? What are really some of the holes? Where's the most gravity? Where are clinicians really looking to looking for change and willing to, you know, um, adopt new technologies? I mean, there's so many considerations like this that you need to think about right from the beginning. And that's when I realized that I really needed to change my strategy. So when you went back to the lab tail between your legs, what was your next step? How did you try and simplify this stem cell therapy process? Well, what I did is I made a commitment um, to meet people in the entrepreneurial ecosystem and um, really form relationships because, you know, it's this understanding that I don't have any basic training in the business world um, and, and it's a completely new world for me. And so what I did is literally every couple weeks or so, I would meet somebody um, and, you know, that person would be a, a patent lawyer, a corporate lawyer, an entrepreneur, someone from industry, reimbursement, regulatory experts, and develop relationships with these people. How do, you, how do you find those people? How do you get, like, searching LinkedIn, asking colleagues? How do you do that? Everything. All, all the above. Um, there's all kinds of networking events that you know, are happening constantly uh, in town. Law firms are putting them on. They're happening at academic institutions. There's there's always, um, you know, it's such a vibrant community here. There, there's always um, talks by local startups happening. And, and so it's really just kind of keeping my ear to the ground um, uh, um, for, for all of these different networking events that were happening. And then going to those events and making a point to um, just introduce myself to people and, and trying to figure out, um, if there would be a hook for them to want to talk to me again. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and so actively engaging in that process and making it a priority um, was, was uh, really important. And what kind of reception did you get from people when you introduce yourself and you say, hi, I'm Jeff Karp, I'm working on this project, I would love to pick your brain about the business side of 
you know, translation. Yeah. And I, well, I think, I think, you know, a big part of it for me was early on, uh, the reception really wasn't that great. I mean, Mm. you know, not, not, uh, you'd, you'd meet people, um, but you know, they'd be looking around the room for, for, for someone to talk to that they'd been hoping that they were there at the event, you know, to, to speak to kind of thing. And so, you know, it took a while to figure out how to, how to get, um, people's attention and, and how to, to get enough time where they'd actually listen. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and for me it was really, it, it was a little bit daunting, but also exciting because, um, be, because you know you're taking a risk doing something that you you hadn't really done before and but you almost have nothing to lose um and there's lots to potentially gain and so you know what I really kind of just looked at it like an experiment so I would just try different things I try to tell them about projects I was working on I try and change like how I would 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 tell those stories um, and eventually, um, people started to listen and you know as we generated more data in the lab I had more to talk about and and, uh, and people wanted to hear, you know, what, what happened next. And so that started leading to, you know, multiple conversations and development of, of really some critical relationships that I still have to uh, this day. Mm, great. And, um, so, so you're meeting people, you're kind of gaining perspectives on areas that you don't have a lot of experience in. Um, and, how does so take me through the next steps and how you change your approach in your lab or just how you change your approach to thinking about these problems absolutely um so i think by starting to engage um you know the groups that i was referring to you know the the, the patent lawyers and reimbursement regulatory experts and manufacturing experts um I, as we started to generate um, new ideas in the lab, I would then use this as a filter. Um, and I think, um, you know, in in many ways, you know, academia is is is, is a safe place um, where you can uh, you can do almost anything. You know, you can you can and. Um, and, and, and there's just so many ideas and there's so many decisions to make about what to do next. I think, you know, often you might be working on something, you go to a conference or you read a paper um, and uh, you see something, you say, oh, I, I could add that to what I'm doing or I could combine it with what I'm doing. Um, but I think the challenge there is that what often happens is is you, you kind of get led down this incremental path and it may be exciting at the time, but it's incremental in the sense that it, it, it's not necessarily going to provide significant value to society. So for me, changing um, just how I thought about um, approaching problems, and I started to realize that we we really have... Um, that the importance of making decisions and all of the decisions that we had. And so what I, I did is as we were brainstorming as a group and people approaching us about various problems to work on, I would start thinking about right from the beginning, um, what's the patent landscape in this, this space look like? So I'd go to Google patents and start, you know, looking at some of the patents. I'd, I'd start um, thinking about, well, if this was, uh, if we were successful, could this be manufactured? What would that look like? Is do we have manufacturing strategies that would work right now, or would we have to invent new ones? Um, you know, what would the clinical trial look like? What what would we compare to? What would the positive control be? Because you know, then we probably want to have that in in a bunch of our experiments. Um, we want to compare to what's the gold standard that's being used right now in the clinic. Um, and so it really is was was this shift from 
doing more exploratory type science um, to really focusing on um, the application and the application in the sense that if we were successful, we'd have the greatest chance to bring these technologies to uh, to patients. Now, one thing I think important to to mention is, you know, we we, we need basic science. We need uh, exploration um, in science and in academia. And, you know, a lot of uh, incredible um, mechanisms have been discovered that have led to breakthroughs that have helped humanity. And, you know, we, we need plenty of that um, to, to continue and, and uh, you know, persist. Um, but I think that we, we also have an opportunity, uh, you know, and, and actually I'll say one more thing is that, you know, we can't translate anything unless we have the basic science already there. You know, we need to have a certain level of understanding of the biology um, and there's many problems that we can't solve today because the biology is not well enough established. And so we really need to, to push basic science and exploration more. Um, what I'm saying is that, um, you know, I've, I love basic science and I love doing exploration. And, and we do do that in some of our projects. Um, but at this point in my career, I, I'm most excited about trying to find ways to um, develop new technologies and bring them to patients as quickly as possible. And I think that's one of the decisions that I've made is that I want to focus my efforts more on that, um, on translation. And, um, and, uh, and that's really where my, my efforts have been for several years. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's a great point that there's room and need for both sides there's tremendous need for the basic science but also the understanding of how to bring new advances to market um so you eventually were successful in developing this stem cell therapy um where is that technology now so the original stem cell technology that we were working on, um, we continued to advance that. We had developed uh, a number of strategies to engineer cells to enhance their their homing, and we continued to work on um, some related projects. But what happened was that actually took us into an interesting direction um, because you know often what we do in projects is you know we'll dive in, and I always feel like. Um, when we start projects, um, most of the time we don't have very good ideas. Um, and, um, but the goal is really to, to dive in and conduct experiments to gain some critical insights that can then, you know, um, shine the light on, on, on new possibilities that, um, may enable us to, to make advances and, and, you know, move the needle beyond where, where the field is currently at. And so I feel like, um, you know that that was almost one of those projects where we were really interested in in um, uh, stem cell therapy. Um, we had identified some challenges in terms of um, engineering cells to to control their their homing and where they go in, in the body. Um, I think we're not quite at the point yet where we're able to achieve a high enough efficiency where that can really be enabled for, for multiple applications, although I think we're getting there. And so we're continuing to think about it. But what happened was along the way, um, we had this other idea, which was, you know, when you put cells into the body, you lose control over the cells. They're entirely at the mercy of the, uh, of the biology and, and the biology is different in different parts of the body, so the stem cells are going to behave differently. I mean, this is very different than a small molecule drug. Um, we're talking about living therapeutics um, with, uh, you know, when you, when you take stem cells out of the body and then inject them back into the body. And so we started to think, you know, maybe there's um, 
better ways of controlling cells, not just for homing, but but also for controlling what the cells secrete. Um, because you know, there's a lot of really interesting cells that we can deliver that could secrete anti-inflammatories or could um, reduce fibrosis, and you know, we can use cells for um, for production of all kinds of interesting therapeutics. Um, but the challenge is that 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 you lose complete control. You know, you have control in in the laboratory in the culture dish and get the cells to do whatever you want. But when you implant them, you lose that control. And so we applied this concept of radical simplicity to uh, to stem cell therapy, and we came up with a very simple way to modify cells um, so that we could control them following transplantation. And what we did is we we took um, standard materials that uh, had been in the clinic in a variety of products, um, so like degradable suture material, um, and uh, we made them into particles, and we put molecules into those particles that could um, uh, activate certain signaling pathways in cells. Um, And what happened was, so if you envision you have like a cell outside the body, it internalizes this particle that has a, a molecule in it, and that particle slowly degrades, so it releases the molecule inside the cell. And if you transplant that cell, it, the molecule is going to continuously be released inside the cell. Um, and so we can we can choose molecules that can activate specific pathways to control what the cells secrete, or potentially control their survival, or control their homing. Um, and so it's a way of controlling cells from the inside out. Um, and we show we could deliver these molecules to cells for, for weeks and potentially months. And so that was, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of next technology that we worked on, um, you know, based on a number of lessons that we learned along the way. Uh, and then that technology was licensed by a biotech company that's in the process of, of bringing this uh, technology to the clinic. There's a couple of things that I wanted to follow up on. You said most of your ideas are bad ideas. When we start. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Could you talk more about that? Sure. When it, when I say bad idea, I think it, it, it it's more um, when we start, we have an interest in a particular area, um, but we don't necessarily have all the pieces in place. Um, you know, we don't really have a deep understanding of the problem. And I think that actually is a problem um, because if you believe that you understand the problem, um, majority of the times, uh, you, you know, you'll fail in trying to do, to, to solve it. Right. Um, and so it's really this sense of we, we, we try and understand the problem as best as possible by going into the literature and then going and talking to experts and seeing if there's nuances um, that you can't find in the literature, things that, you know, insights that we can gain. Um, and then we start conducting experiments. You know, we might conceive of, of a solution or we might conceive of a technology. Um, but, but, but I think, you know, when we start, none of us really believe that, that, that that's what we're going to end up with. And I think it's this understanding that what we really need to do is think about the best possible experiments to perform um, in in the laboratory or in animal models where we're going to learn something new or we're going to gain some insights where we're going to be able to deconstruct that problem um, and 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 figure out um, w- what should really be our guiding path forward because there's so many decisions to be made about you know how to approach a problem and I think what we want is we really want to understand the problem um, as deep as deeply as possible. And, and often you can't do that unless you start conducting experiments and, and really um, confirming what others have 
uh, believed about the problem, you know, uh, or figuring out, you know, things that, that others have missed. Um, and I think, you know, it's critical to, to spend time, you know, I think, I think there's a tendency to, to just jump to a solution. And so, you know, you look and you say, you know, here's this problem of arthritis and, you know, here's kind of what people have tried and, and we think this is going to be the next best thing. And we're going to now, you know, have this linear path moving it forward. And, and it, it really never works that way. And I think what we, what we found is, is that, you want to conduct experiments in a way that you maximize what you learn to confirm or, or to, um, to, uh, refute what others have been, been, been describing as, as the problem. And so I think that's where the bad ideas come from is that initially, I don't think we have good ideas because we don't understand the problem, but we have to, you have to take a leap of faith. You got to, start from somewhere. And I think, so, so you kind of come up with the best idea you can and then you test it, but you have to keep a super open mind. Um, and, 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 and the goal is not to push your, the agenda that you started with, but rather to, um, look at it as a, as an education process on understanding the problem. Hmm. What advice would you have for, uh, researchers who are either in the translational space or not? How do you, how do they take this idea of simplifying and understanding the problem? How can they put that into practice? I think there's a, a, a number of things. Um, to me, the problem is, 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 um, you know, it has many different components to it. Um, the problem often is not just, um, you know, getting a specific result in a specific model, but it's also understanding the regulatory path, the manufacturing, it's understanding the patent landscape. You know, you really have to define the problem in the context of the societal problem. And, and, and then not only how are you going to get a specific result in, in a model, but how are you then going to bring that to patients? And, and to me, that that's a big part of it is looking beyond the problem that you see, you know, with what you're just looking at in that moment and actually need to think of the entire translational process of like, you know, what, what's the commercialization process? And that is actually part of the problem. So I think that's a, that's a big, big part of it. Um, and, uh, and, and needs to be considered right from the beginning if the goal is indeed, um, to, uh, to advance translation and not just, you know, so that, that's where I think the approach differs between exploratory basic science mm-hmm. and translation is, is that you're essentially, you know, it's fine in basic science to have a, a five or 10 or 15 step process, um, to do something if it's going to allow you to uncover a new mechanism or, you know, if it's going to allow you to, to, um, elucidate new biology mm-hmm. and, and answer specific questions. But if you start thinking about it from a translational perspective, you know, you want to be able to do it in one step. Right. Um, and, and so the approach is completely, completely different. Okay. We also have to consider here that there is room for, for more complex, um, technologies. And, and there are a number that have helped, you know, uh, have, have helped tons of patients. I think, you know, what I'm, what I'm referring to is, you know, anytime you ha- have a 
a technology or an approach that that has um, more complexity to it, it's just going to be harder to bring that to, to patients. It's going to take more time. It's going to take more resources, more money that's going to be need to be raised, um, which means you'll have less potential groups that you can go to because you have to you have to you know raise even even more money. But that's you know still a possibility. Um, I think you know if you have a complex process and and you're um, you know, you really think that there's a lot of promise. It, it one one thing you can do is start talking to um, experts, you know, manufacturing experts early on, and ask them, you know, is this possible? Like, how long would this take, and what kind of resources would be required to advance this? And I think that's a big part of of the process of radical simplicity is engaging engaging um, the types of people who are going to be essential to bring that technology. And, and, and make it a product. Um, and you want to be asking these questions early to the experts. And there's lots of engineering firms that you can bring in. Um, these are contract groups that, that will provide quotes and give you better understanding of, of what, how long and um, whether it's possible. Um, and how much it's going to cost to really bring this forward and, and maybe even have I, they have ideas on how to simplify the process. And I think you don't want to wait till the end. You want to do that right in the beginning. And to me, that's that's just the big part of, of, of radical simplicity is just constantly, you know, really thinking about the problem in terms of the, the whole spectrum of translation, not just what you're doing in the laboratory, but what comes afterwards, and then engaging people in the community so that you're simplifying at every possible step and that you really have a deep understanding of, of some of the nuances that you need to be thinking of today to maximize the potential for that to help patients tomorrow. Thank you, Dr. Karp, for joining us. It was great to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Next time on Think Research. To us, it seems like one of the only ways to capture that complexity um, in a way that does it justice is to actually take the network perspective and actually rise above just the way of looking at healthcare as just kind of a list of doctors who are seeing a patient at a given time. Dr. Michael Barnett explains the impact of networks of care on health outcomes and spending. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.